0: Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. I'm your host, Tyler Burns, and I wanted to come to you before we kick off this episode to give some framing for today's conversation. Now, I have to admit to you guys, and some of you already know this, but I am a fan of award shows. While live tweeting our reactions to these decisions has enhanced the award show experience, I have to tell you, even before social media was a thing, I just love sitting down and watching people receive recognition, whether it's film, music, sports, it didn't matter. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because these events so often take on this sporting element of rooting for your favorites. Or maybe it's that I appreciate people receiving well-deserved acknowledgement for their labor and their creativity. But whatever it is, any award show that comes on is something I usually sit down and watch. I don't know what it is. But there's a double-edged sword to these award shows. While they can give much-deserved acknowledgement to creatives who have earned these honors, they can also stir up inevitable controversy. Last week at the Academy Awards, the most prestigious award show in the film industry, they gave out their highest award, best picture, to the movie Green Book. And the Oscar goes to Green Book. Now, Green Book is a film that documents the African-American classical and jazz pianist Don Shirley, played by Mahershala Ali, and Italian-American bouncer Tony Vallelonga, played by Viggo Mortensen, who served as Shirley's driver and bodyguard. Now, according to the film, the two men developed an unlikely friendship through this dangerous journey to concert stops in the racist American Deep South. What made the Green Book victory so vexing to my soul wasn't just the fact that Viggo Mortensen had used the N-word on a press junket with co-star Mahershala Ali sitting right next to him. It wasn't just that the director had come forward to apologize for previous inappropriate behavior in the workplace. It wasn't just that the film failed to educate the audience about the necessity and details of the Negro motorist Green Book in the first place. And it wasn't just that the film pushed yet another one of Hollywood's fanciful reconciliation narratives. I was most vexed because Don Shirley's living family explicitly denounced the film as false, as a symphony of lies. Don Shirley is from my hometown of Pensacola, Florida. And I have to tell you guys, I felt personally attacked by the proximity of yet another group of white people, white creatives, telling the story that they want to be told. So it just so happens that a few days after Green Book's controversial victory at the Oscars, I was scheduled to screen a movie that's coming out next month. It's called Best of Enemies, and it's a film that features Taraji P. Henson and Sam Rockwell playing a black woman and a white man on opposite ends of the civil rights movement in 1960s Durham, North Carolina. Over time, the two develop an unlikely friendship. This sounds familiar, right? But what drew me to even watching the film was the real-life black woman that Taraji P. Henson portrays. Her name was Ann Atwater.
1: Somebody's up called me this morning, wanted to know what services did my church give and what services do I give. And I told them I just lend whatever God
0: gave me to give out. God gave me, number one, the gift to reach out and touch. And when I feel that somebody called me for some help, God wants me to go on record as saying I tried. All I had was God holding my back. And that's it. I had to wait. I had to really put out there on faith. Then, sure enough.
1: So you still got your back? He
0: got. you still got my back. Ann Atwater was a Southern civil rights activist who organized campaigns to challenge unjust laws and racist systems that disenfranchise black people in the city of Durham. When I read about her personal life and freedom work, I was ashamed that I had no more about her while she was still alive. But the opportunity to watch a film that could teach me more about this amazing Black woman activist was something I could not pass up. But after seeing Best of Enemies, I was once again vexed, y'all. It's a Hollywood film that will undoubtedly play well with Southern audiences yearning for racial catharsis. Henson and Rockwell are good in their acting roles, as we should all expect. But I came away bothered because of the perspective that the story was told from. It seemed like instead of learning more about Anne Atwater, the focus was seemingly on Rockwell's character, the recovering white supremacist C.P. Ellis. There were tropes that bothered me and portrayals that made watching the film more than a bit uncomfortable at times. maybe it's the proximity of the Green Book controversy, but I have to be honest with you, I just felt bothered by it. I wanted this to mainly be a story about Ann Atwater, not another story about the recovery of a white supremacist through an unexpected friendship. And was this even historically accurate? That was my question. So to get to the bottom of my concerns, we decided to have a conversation with someone who knew Ann Atwater personally and was mentored by her in the principles of Freedom Work. His name is Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He knew her so well, in fact, that he's the director of the School of Conversion, an education center that Anne Atwater devoted her time to as a freedom teacher, mentoring young activists on the principles of freedom organizing for change. You might have heard of Jonathan's name in connection with the Reverend Dr. William Barber. He worked with Dr. Barber on the reclamation of the Poor People's Campaign and co-authored a book with him called The Third Reconstruction. Jonathan's most recent solo book is entitled Reconstructing the Gospel. Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. Listen, I have no desire to bash this film, but maybe considering the film subject and considering the woman that it's supposed to be about, we could have an honest conversation and wrestle with this and let you, the audience member, decide if you want to watch the film or learn more about the story. So in the spirit of Anne Atwater's commitment to risky dialogue, listen to Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove and I have a transparent conversation about Hollywood's idea of magical blackness, faith in the freedom movement struggle, the power of anger, and most importantly, the real story of Ann Atwater. This is Pass the Mic. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us here on Past the Mic. Oh, it's so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. And it would be remiss of us to have you on the podcast and not talk about your most recent book, Reconstructing the Gospel, with a an incredible subtitle, which is Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. And we were talking a little bit about the book before we press record on this broadcast. So I want to give you the opportunity to share part of your story and what motivated you to write this book.
1: Yeah. Well, this this has really been my life journey. Yeah. Um... I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in North Carolina and uh, grew up in the heyday of the moral majority movement when that was really coming to be. I didn't realize it at the time, but have, have since uh, learned that that was really about uh, a, a political movement trying to co-opt uh, faith and the faith of uh, the people who raised me. So um, hmm. I have learned from prophetic black Christians uh, that that pattern of using religion to push back against moral movements is rooted deeply in the uh, resistance to abolitionism in the 19th century, and that a slaveholder religion was developed and called Christianity in order to do that. So learning the patterns of slaveholder religion and how they have continued, um, although to justify things other than slavery, but other kinds of deep injustice uh, and sin, that's been an important part of my life. So I wanted to write that down and uh, this book is an attempt to do that.
0: And you mentioned prophetic black Christians. And in the course of our discussions, you shared with us your story of how you met Ann Atwater, uh, the subject of the film Best of Enemies, and also a personal friend of yours and someone who was extremely important for the city of Durham, extremely important for all of us to know. Can you share how you met her and the relationship that you had with her when she was alive?
1: Yes, yeah, she's she's one of these uh, prophetic teachers. I mean, she is very much my spiritual mother in the freedom movement. And I learned so much from her. When I moved to Durham in 2003, she was uh, widely recognized as, you know, an elder in the movement and as mm-hmm. uh, a, a deeply committed uh, community activist and organizer. And so uh, I went to her and said, I wanted to learn what she knew. And she said, oh, what? what I know is simple. It's just, it's just basic organizing. I said, well, that's, it's basic to you, but that's what I want to know. She said, well, I can, <laughs> right. Right. Then I can tell you how I do what I do. I said, all right, tell me. She said, she said, uh, all I got to do to do what I do is I've got to listen to you long enough to learn what you want. And that's when cool. I know what you want, I'll help you get it. And when we get halfway to what you want, I'll tell you what I want. <laughs> she said, that's oh, organized. Wow. And I said, huh. uh, I said, all right. So, so that, you know, it didn't take her long to explain it, but uh, she invited me along to to really learn it. And uh, that the other thing she said in that first conversation was she said, uh, now, this is the only thing I'm going to need from you. I said, what's that? She said, she said, I'm not going to just be your teacher. She said, I got to adopt you. You got to become my son. And so uh, that that was very much uh, uh, how we became family with one another. And and that's really her. That was her vision for everything she did. To, to, to kind of mother the beloved community, you know, to to bring people in, to tell the hard truths about what we do to one another, what we keep doing to one another, both interpersonally and systemically, to tell those hard truths, but to, to always do it with this deep, deep love that believes that people can be, can change and can become part of something that uh, that we can't even imagine so often. And I think it's a, it's a wisdom that's so deeply needed in our country right now, so deeply needed in our world. Hmm. And that's true.
0: It's a a very timely story, both your book and then the connection as well to Anne Atwater is, it's a timely message of organizing. It's a timely message of love. And as you mentioned, the beloved community, and I have to admit to you, that when you first brought this to our attention and when you shared this with Jamar and I, mm. I wasn't as familiar as I should have been with Ann Atwater's story. Mm. And in studying her, honestly, I felt ashamed because I said, how do I not know who she is mm. um, better than what I did before? And so my question is, why do you believe her story hasn't been told? Why hasn't her story been shared more widely? Or have have, have I just missed it? It doesn't seem like she's mentioned with some of the names in the south that yeah. um you know pushed the freedom movement.
1: Yeah. No, it's a it's a failure of Christian imagination for one thing, it's also a it's also a failure of American history. But I but you know it's not just about her, right? I mean she, uh she was an incredibly uh powerful and visionary woman, but uh I don't want anybody who sees this movie or hears about her to think that she was exceptional. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. kind of the the kind of white liberal thing to do when you hear a story like this is to say, Oh, what an exceptional person. No, no, she, there was, there was nothing exceptional about her and she never thought there was, she understood herself to be deeply connected to a tradition of black women organizing in the South. She knew dozens of other women like her. And, you know, when, when she flew to Texas in the eighties for Rosa parks to give her the Rosa parks award, uh, you know, she was just, she was just going to meet with another sister. Uh, So We have told stories in ways that elevate, you know, someone like a Rosa Parks or someone like a Martin King to some sort of, you know, half saint status, uh, but in a way that I think distances them from the communities that made their work possible. And Anne is one of many, many people who have been uh, the anchors of those kind of communities throughout the South and the Southern Freedom Movement for, for just decades.
0: Now, how do you feel it's your responsibility? You talked about this a little bit, that in your closing conversations with Ann Atwater before she passed, mm-hmm. that she had she had given you a task, she had given you a charge, something that you were supposed to do as it relates to her memory, but then also beyond that as it relates to the freedom movement. What did yeah. she tell you to do and why do you feel that that's important for us as a church to emphasize right
1: now? Yeah. Uh so she very much knew this, this movie was gonna come out and uh and she began to realize that she was not going to live to see it. When she had first received the uh, manuscript of the screenplay from Robin Bissell who who wrote this and uh you know when when he sent it to us, uh we learned who he was because when we googled him he was just then producing the Hunger Games. So this was somebody, you know, who's right. very established in Hollywood, but but had heard this story and he wanted he wanted to tell it. And so I, I read the screenplay and I said, you know, like any Hollywood film, it's going to zoom in on particular people <laughs> yes, and it's going yeah. to zoom in on a particular moment. So, so this is a story about two weeks of her life, really, you know, in, in, in which uh, during a, a campaign uh, or not a campaign, but during a, a, a federally uh, mandated process here in Durham, the schools were desegregated. And the uh, agent who uh, was sent to do that, his name is Bill Riddick. Uh, Bill decided that the way to bring the community together to have that conversation was to get the polar opposite leaders in town to agree to co chair it. So she agreed to co chair with the man who uh, had been the leader of the local Ku Klux Klan and, you know, whom she had wanted to kill on multiple occasions. And, uh, you know, it was just unimaginable that they would do something together, except. That he told them, you know, if either of you don't do it, the other one's going to get to do it by themselves. And so they both said, "Well, of course, you know, we're, we're not going to let them have it." So, mm-hmm. so they were kind of forced right. together in this story. And uh, and 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 I knew, you know, when I when I read the screenplay and talked to her about it, that that you know that was necessarily going to focus in on one particular thing. But but I promised her, and we established here in Durham uh, an Ann Atwater Freedom Library to kind of uh, continue uh, the the legacy of her work. I promised her that uh, to the best of my ability, I would introduce people to that deep organizing tradition that that had raised her up and that she had continued to teach people uh you know to the very end of her life the last decade of her life she taught uh, faith rooted freedom movement organizing uh, out of the school for conversion here where I work so so we're committed to um, to introducing people to that, and that's why we produced this Bible study that, you know, if folks are going to see the movie, we, we want them to really dig into how Anne read the Bible and and how the whole movement that she wants to invite people into has read Scripture as really a call necessarily to be in relationship with God by being in, in, in a, a an organized pursuit of justice with your neighbors.
0: Yeah, that's that's really good. I'm glad that you brought that up. So <laughs> I, I talked with Jonathan beforehand about having a conversation about the film. And I think you eloquently put it that films necessarily and Hollywood productions are necessarily going to focus on one moment in time. And so I wanted to have just a little aside conversation about maybe some of the details that I may not understand or maybe mm-hmm. curious to people who are kind of looking in for the first time. And so I had the privilege of watching the film Best of Enemies, and it stars Taraji P Henson and Sam Rockwell, and they give really good performances, and it's a well-made film. And what, but what drew me to the film is the idea that I would learn more about Anne Atwater, mm. and in studying her. I felt like this was a great opportunity to to tell a story about a woman who, while not magical in the way in which Hollywood would like to portray, uh, had just a very deep well of, and you mentioned it earlier, a deep well of wisdom, a deep well of understanding. She seemed like she went through so many things. Mm. But when I got to the film, I felt that it was told almost exclusively through the lens of the white supremacist, C.P. Ellis. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, from what you understand, how instrumental was their relationship? How instrumental was their friendship? Because it seems to me that when we talk about this change, when when, it, when we talk about desegregation of schools, in the framing of the film, it makes it seem like he was an essential part of the the, the desegregation of schools. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it, it was more so an intentional part rather than an unintentional coincidental part. Like he was dragged along by the people who wanted justice and wanted freedom uh, for young black kids in that area. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective and what you understand, how important was her relationship with C.P. Ellis? Because the film makes it seem one way. And I just wanted to say, (laughs) is that true? Is that really how it was? Because it seems like the story that you wouldn't believe even if Hollywood wrote it, but Mm -hmm. it seems like some of it's accurate. So what would you say to that?
1: Well, I think their relationship prior to the film, and I hope I haven't actually seen the film, but I but I hope it comes out that you know that they were clearly at odds with one another and were familiar yeah. with one another, uh, but but frankly, you know, hated one another. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in reflecting on it later, uh, you know, Anne used to say, um, uh, you know, I-, I wanted to kill the man, and I know he wanted to kill me. Like they were, they just had no imagination of. Uh, even, you know, the the possibility of working together. And one piece of the story of their friendship that I do think is really important to highlight is that it, it was the brilliance of black organizing. It was, you know, mm. Bill Riddick having this conviction that if if he was going to bring people together, he was going to have to find a way to persuade them that it was in their self-interest to be at the same table. And that in the midst of that, you know, a woman like Anne had the good organizing sense To listen to him and to learn what he wanted. And when she was able to convince him that she had heard what he wanted and that she wanted to help him get it, that is that she wanted to help him uh, pursue a future for the schools that would be good for his children as well as hers, uh, that I I think that did have a profound impact. impact on him and on the, the, the change in the school system. So for the rest of their life, they did remain friends. She delivered the eulogy at his funeral. I mean, they, they, they did remain close. But I, I think what's the part of the story that, that isn't told in the film is that you know he didn't just sort of tear up his clan card in front of the town at the end of this meeting, but but he became an organizer. He became a union organizer here in town and worked for workers' rights for the rest of his life. Hmm. Wow. So that's
0: really interesting. And as we think about their relationship, you mentioned it that they both had this deep sense of of hating one another, and then also wanting to kill one another. And it's it's fascinating to me because I, I want to know how close this is to the truth. Because it seems like, and the film has certain clips at the end, at the beginning, and the end mm-hmm. of them talking. And from hearing the clips, it seems like the film and the clips focus. A little bit on it focuses on both of their anger, but it focuses also on Anne's anger. Mm. And it seemed like in certain parts of the film, CP f- seemed a little bit even more composed than Anne, mm. a little bit more calculated than Anne. Not smarter, not more, not more strategic, mm-hmm. but more calculated. And so my question to you is: is is it true that Anne had this deep sense of anger because? that seems to me like a, a logical, necessary response to mm-hmm. a KKK infested, uh, unjust mm-hmm. society and system. And, and my feeling was, if if I'm in her position and if I'm next to her, I want her to be angry and I want yes. her to be furious. And I want that mm-hmm. not in a destructive sense, but in a purifying sense. right? And so how close was that to reality? Is it true that she was angry in the passionate, purifying sense? Or was it something different than what's being portrayed?
1: No, I think she was bad as hell. <laughs> I mean, she had, she, had, she, had come I up, she had come up, you know, in the gut bucket, Jim Crow South. Uh, she she her, her daddy was a sharecropper in rural Columbus County, North Carolina. Uh, her, her mother died largely, I think, because of lack of access to health care when she was young. Uh, she had come to Durham following a man and that man had left her and she had tried to survive raising two children, you know, on, on what a domestic worker could make, cleaning houses, you know, white folks' houses here in Durham. Uh, she she understood that this world that, that existed around her didn't recognize the dignity of her and other people, but she had heard in church, she had heard it from her daddy. She used to about the Bible studies her daddy would do at home. She had heard the good news that she was somebody and she knew it was true and she wasn't going to let anybody, uh, anybody try to tell her otherwise. And I think that was a personal conviction that she carried until she met Howard Fuller who uh, worked for the North Carolina fund and who taught her community organizing. And I think he immediately recognized that she was a genius uh, in terms of uh, a capacity to communicate that to other people. And uh, she immediately recognized that what he was saying was a way of putting the, the, what she believed about herself into practice for other people. And so it was always for her a way of putting her faith into action. It was always this, she, she embodies this. I think, you know, I grew up with white people who, frankly, were never comfortable with their emotions. So they couldn't, they, hmm. could, they could never feel totally righteous about being angry. Or you know about being attracted to somebody else or anything like we were just we were just taught to be uncomfortable with oh. our emotions, and uh, I think what, what she what she embodied so fully was what the scriptures say when they say be angry but do not sin. <laughs> mm-hmm. she, she was bad as mm-hmm. hell, but she wasn't gonna, she wasn't gonna let that keep her from recognizing the humanity in other people and recognizing that that people make decisions every day, and and whatever position you're in you can make a decision to do something else. And so it doesn't matter if you're the leader of the Klan, if you're the mayor of town, if you, you know, run a store, you can make a decision today to do things differently. And she always believed in people's potential to do that and was, and was going to confront people about it. You know, if, if, if you acted mm. like you didn't have time to listen to her, she would, uh, you know, she would holler. And if you didn't listen, she'd slap you in the head and say, listen, this, <laughs> this is important. Right. You know, this is important. I'm talking to you. About something that matters to somebody, and you have power to do something about it. it, it towards the end of her life, she used, she she would often say, "You know, uh, I can't get as many people out as I used to." She said, "But I can still pick up this phone and call somebody, and I know if they have the power to say yes, I'm not going to stop talking to them until they say yes."
0: <laughs> mm, wow, that tenacity, that determination, that is so fast. I love that. Um, and and you know, you mentioned something that's actually a really good part of the film that I will I will give the film credit for mm-hmm. and it's this idea that the film honestly portrays both quote unquote sides and I hate even using that term but both sides mm-hmm. whether it's from a white supremacist perspective or from a freedom organizing perspective mm-hmm. using the bible like prominently using scripture mm-hmm. and it talks about the expressions of christianity from two extremes not the extreme of of left, right, quote unquote, yeah. um, or the extreme of different ideologies, but the extreme of slaveholder and 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 freedom, yeah. like the the extreme of the KKK directly using spiritual and Christian references mm-hmm. to enslave, to keep people down, to oppress, mm-hmm. to further marginalize, mm-hmm. and and I do believe that there are intersections with your work. What can Anne Atwater teach the church about a true biblical, honest? Justice-seeking, freedom-loving (laughs) gospel—the the 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 Mm -hmm. true, unadulterated, pure, peaceable religion that Frederick
1: Douglass would talk about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you're right that um, you know that when CP was drawn to the Klan, there was a whole slaveholder religion that uh, that drew him to that. And I think what Anne recognized there was a there was a kind of compassion. In her imagination, that allowed her to see that the Klan was the only organization that had ever told him he mattered. He was a poor white mm-hmm. man in the South. You know, he didn't mm-hmm. he didn't live up to the glorious image of whiteness, uh, you know, of, of of success and you know male prowess in society. He he didn't have that going for him. So the Klan was the only organization that had ever told him you matter, and you you know you matter because you can rally people who are going to you know stand up for our folks or, or or whatever. And I think she recognized in that, that, that she had something in the gospel that she had always heard at church that he needed. He needed a gospel that affirmed his somebodyness because he was made in the image of God and that helped him to see that he couldn't live into that image without recognizing his common humanity with other people who were created in the image of God. And so mm-hmm. she, I, I do think, you know, as much as she had hated him, and had been angry with what he was doing to hurt her and her people, she had enough compassion to recognize that he was, he was in need of the same, you know, the same thing that she wanted, that, that, hmm. that deep affirmation of who we are as people, who we are as people created in God's image, and, and who we can be together. And uh, I hmm. think she, she knew that the uh, uh, old spirituals, and the gospel songs that emerged out of them had a power to communicate that to people. I, I'll, I'll never forget. She told me one day in that in that week of meetings, two two weeks of meetings every day that they were in, they decided early on they were going to have cultural uh, time in the evenings, and and this you know just to kind of expose the poverty of whiteness. Uh, uh, the, you know hmm. the only the only thing CP had to offer was that he could bring some of the literature from the Klan. You know he he didn't have any culture to offer. Um. But she said, "When well, the choir from my church can come. And so this choir would come in the evenings and sing gospel songs at the end of these day-long meetings. And she said, uh, she said, I looked over one day after we had cried together in the back, and I saw him tapping his foot while they were singing. And I said, we got him now. <laughs> and, and the film
0: shows something similar to that. Yeah, so the film does show something very similar to that. And it's really that's that's very interesting that you bring that up because, and and if we can talk about CP for a second, I think it is important to see him reckoning with the way in which, and the film does do this in a, in a certain line, reckoning with the way in which the Klan got him and mm-hmm. how if he accepted the Klan's premise, he had a problem now because he had he had such proximity mm. with these Black Christians and these Black citizens that now he would have to view them differently because if he accepted the Klan's premise yeah. and some of the Klan's messaging, he he would he followed it to its furthest extent, so to speak. Yeah. Um, my question is, do you know if he ever reckoned with... With his past sins, mm. and did he ever reckon with some of the terror that he inflicted? Because one of the things that I, I, I think is is concerning in some of these types of movies mm-hmm. is that you see, you know, very explicit white supremacist terrorism. Mm-hmm. And then you don't see a reckoning with the people who were terrorized. And you don't yeah, see yeah. an accountability for these things, even an illusion mm-hmm. to say, yes, he's going to lose some things by tearing up a clan membership. Mm-hmm. But he terrorized people when he was a part, when he was leading the clan. So now, yeah. how does he go back and reconcile with those who he terrorized? Yeah. And yeah. you may or may not know this, but just from what you understand, was he ever forced to reckon with those past sins?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really important question. Um, I did not get to know him. He was still living when I came to town, but uh, he had Alzheimer's at the end of his life. So I, I didn't get to know him well. Um, I do know his family. And uh, and I do know from Ann, uh, you know, the, the, the life that he lived after that. And I think one of the ways he had to reckon with his past was that um, he had to live the rest of his life knowing that the people he had hated were now the only people he had because the the clan completely rejected him it, you know he he would go to ann's church to worship because um because nobody wanted to have really? anything to wow. do with him in the community that he had been part of and that i think um and like i said you know when when he died in 2005 uh she preached the eulogy at his funeral so i, I so i think for for him um a part of the, and I think this is sort say more broadly, you know, for for people who have been caught up in slaveholder religion, I think there are always, you know, particular sins against individuals that have to be addressed. And I, I don't know all the details about how he may or may not have done that, but I think in addition to that, and this has been part of my own journey too, uh, those of us who have been caught up in slaveholder religion, if we're honest about repentance, we also have to be honest about the systems that we have helped to prop up and perpetuate. And what I do know is that in his work as an organizer, uh, he was committed for the rest of his life to, uh, to to bringing white and black people together uh, to organize uh, against the economy that had used racial division to prop up some elites so that a, a vast majority of people in this town remained poor. And in that way i think he did see what dr king was trying to say during the poor people's campaign that that you know since the uh, end of the civil war race has been used to split black and white folks and increasingly brown and other folks um to split them off from one another so that they can't come together and uh, insist that everybody has a right to health care, everybody has a right to a good education, everybody has a right to a living wage you know these 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 issues that impact the vast majority of people in this country uh race is so often used as a kind of cultural you know split issue to keep people from seeing their common cause on those things
0: that 's so good, um, and I think you have proximity to that as well with. You know, your work, um, whether it's justice seeking and freedom movements and conversations and the stuff that you've done with uh, the Reverend Dr. William Barber as well. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, and and leading a little bit into, you know, some of the materials as well that you created for this film,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how important are conversations? Because I think even in the justice space, mm-hmm. there is an idea that there are conversations we have to have, and then there are conversations that we don't have to have. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense that there is a spiritual element that we cannot, a supernatural element that we cannot quantify, Mm. that even the coldest heart, even the hardest heart can be melted um, or can be broken through by the love that is within us. Mm. And so how important have you seen conversations be to and actually enacting the change in the Bible Belt, Deep South areas where I live and mm-hmm. in other places where you grew up? Has it been conversations? Has it been statistics? Has it been mm. a proximity? Has it always been relationships? What's worked in getting people out of um, their addiction or their bondage to slaveholder
1: religion? Mm. Well, you know... Um, I'm also a a pastor and you know I care for souls and one of the things I I know from from that work is that no matter what people are struggling with you know people people change when people decide that what they've been doing isn't working anymore uh so so I think uh I think how as a church we teach and shape culture um is important because those things can give people some some framework, you know, in which to think about things differently. Um, but I, what I've learned from organizing is that um, organizing brings people together around what they want, what they already know they want. And when you can organize, as we're trying to do, you know, in the moral fusion organizing model that the Poor People's Campaign is using, that, that really is what Anne practiced all of her life. We're trying to bring people together who haven't thought that they had a lot of reason to be together but who but who can see that a that a you know a moral agenda that tries to bring together all of the things that a very small and elite number of people are trying to prevent if we bring those all those issues together then then all of a sudden you got folks you know who don't usually talk to one another you got the you know lgbtq activists who are here with the formerly incarcerated folks you know, and the undocumented folks and people who, you know, are really concerned uh, about health care because their state, you know, denied the expansion of Medicaid or because they never had, you know, access to the the, the options that were available. When, when we come together around these things, I think then we have the opportunity to have different kinds of conversations. So I guess what I would say is I don't really believe so much in conversation for conversation's sake. I think that can often lead to just, you know, people talking past one another, But when we listen closely enough to understand what people want and bring people together around the things that they want, I think new kinds of conversation can happen and people can begin to see through really the lies that have separated us from one another. Hmm.
0: That's very, very helpful. And in speaking about conversations, you created this curriculum um, for the film Best of Enemies. And I wanted you to talk about its importance and what your hope is mm-hmm. um, if churches want to utilize it, if they want to, whether it's a small group or neighborhood Bible study or whatever may, it yeah. may be, what, explain what, what the curriculum is and what your hope is for those who would use it.
1: Yeah, so I wrote this for faith groups. So, so this is designed to plug into you know existing Christian education that you do with your Bible study, with your Sunday school, with your uh, uh, on-campus ministry group, you know, in whatever context people are reading the Bible. This is just a four-week study that you could do in that context, uh, because I do believe that in those contexts we shape an imagination for what the Bible is is, is calling us to do, and I think. Anne's story, and Anne and C.P.'s story, as it's told in this film, at least creates an opportunity where we can have a conversation about how she read the Bible. So what the study does is it it, it introduces her story and some of her wisdom as I came to learn it from her. It it, it reads a Bible text closely, and then it uh, asks people to do some some real work in terms of what she uh, called—she always said God gave her the gift to reach out and touch— and so there are, there are activities for people to do before they gather again in terms of really engaging this material, putting it into practice uh, in their community. And, and it's, in essence, it's a kind of organizing 101 alongside the scripture that calls us to this work uh, as a way of walking people into the uh, embodied wisdom that, that, that I think Anne represents and is uh, such a profound witness to.
0: Oh, that's so good. Where can people pick up this curriculum? Um, is it going to be released, or is it something that is still being formulated?
1: And- it's, it's 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 available now at the Ann Atwater Freedom Library, which is a part of the School for Conversion. Schoolforconversion.org is the website. If you go to the Ann Atwater Freedom Library, you can download the study And it references several materials that we have in our archive that's also our digital archives accessible on that site. So there are some videos and some primary documents that you can reference as you're working through the study. Jonathan, thank you so much for this
0: conversation. I really appreciate your perspective uh, for writing the curriculum, your pastoral perspective, your freedom organizing perspective, and of course, your proximity to Ann Atwater. It's been a pleasure having you on, Pastor Mike.
1: Oh, delighted to talk with you. Blessings.